Well, if it walks like a recession, talks like a recession, and feels like a recession to people in their communities, it's a recession. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And today, I'm really excited for our panel. Returning to the Roundup, Senior Advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Our good friend, Mike Madrid. We're here in Sacramento on the last stop of our California tour. Here in my hometown. <laughs> last stop in Mike's hometown. Also returning to the Roundup, the inimitable Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you, and thanks for being here on short notice today. It's great to see you. On this week's Roundup, first, we'll look at the likelihood that we're currently in a recession and why, oh, why is the Biden administration beating around the bush? We're also going to look at a dramatic shift in how Ted Cruz is now talking about immigration and what that pivot implies. Then, Last week's season finale of the primetime January 6th hearings, the Murdoch print machine souring on Trump, who we now know is personally being investigated by the DOJ, and Republicans pushing further and further and further away from democracy. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we're going to read the intra-party posturing ahead of the presidential primary season and the quiet calculations that are happening right now. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is a private ad-free version of the podcast where we bring you strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. Last Friday, the Atlanta Federal Reserve released their GDP Now measure which tracks economic data in real time and adjusts continually, and it showed second quarter output contracting by 2.1%. Now, coupled with a 1.6% decline in the first quarter, that means it looks like we've hit a recession. Two consecutive quarters of decline in the GDP. We're recording on Wednesday right now, and we will have the second quarter GDP data out tomorrow. Uh, But this week, there's been a lot of pre-spin from the Biden administration and allies about that potential decline. Starting last week, Biden's economic advisors have been arguing that even if the GDP report shows a second quarter of decline, that doesn't necessarily mean we're in a recession. They've been pointing to the definition uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research uses, which is, quote, a significant decline in economic activity to spread across the economy and lasts more than a few months, end quote. Now, U.S. economists and media have generally deferred to NBER business cycle data uh, to, to make their rulings about when a recession starts and ends, and this goes back decades. But it's also really important to note that the NBER is very slow moving, and they always make this judgment call retroactively. They're not trying to be the first ones to call a recession. Their focus is on making a definitive judgment call after the fact. So if a recession is beginning this summer or has already begun, they won't make that call until the data definitively point to a recession, which could be months and months away. We don't know. So there is obviously an enormous ripple effect when the economy goes into recession formally, but I'm thinking about the argument over the definition itself. People are concerned about inflation and the state of the economy. 
The number of people who are confident in the economic conditions has dwindled over the last several months. That's according to Gallup. But the Biden administration has been hammering the semantics here. Here's Biden's top economic advisor, Brian Deese, restating the NBER's definition of a recession at a press conference. Many of you have uh, reported on, um, as Secretary Yellen said on Sunday, uh, two negative quarters of GDP growth is not uh, the technical definition of recession. It's not the definition that economists have traditionally uh, relied on. Uh, there is an organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, and what they do is they look at a broad range of data in deciding uh, whether or not a recession has occurred. Now, here's Janet Yellen, who he mentioned on Meet the Press, admitting a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. A common definition of recession is two negative quarters of GDP growth, or at least that's something that's been true in past recessions, when we've seen that, there has usually been a recession. And many economists uh, expect second quarter GDP to be negative. First quarter GDP was negative. So we could see that happen, and that will be closely watched. But I do want to emphasize what a recession really means is a broad-based contraction yeah. in the economy. And even if that number is negative, we are not in a recession now. And um, I, I would, you know, warn that we should be um, not, not characterizing that as a recession. I understand that, but you're splitting hairs. I mean, if the technical definition is two quarters of contraction, you're saying that's not a recession? That's not the, te- no. that's not the technical definition. So she then went on to quote, again, the NBER definition of a recession, which we've just explained how that's used. But Mike, what part of explaining equals losing does the administration not seem to understand here? They don't understand any of it. And that's what's so infuriating is this is not the way you communicate your understanding or relatability to people who are suffering in this economy. That is just not the way you do it. Now, look, before people get all exercised about this, nobody is suggesting this is Joe Biden's fault or somehow you're not a loyalist for the cause or down with whatever. But this is this is not Joe Biden's fault. I'm not going to suggest that it is, at least not entirely. But what I will absolutely 100% suggest is his fault is, is not acknowledging that the economy is in bad shape, Okay. And trying to split hairs on the definitions as to whether this is a colloquial uh, recession, a technical recession, or a commonly defined recession is probably the most absurd thing I have seen an administration do since Donald Trump was uh, saying, let's inject bleach or or (laughs) use inner lights in our body to get rid of the coronavirus. (laughs) Like, stop, stop (laughs) digging, digging. stop digging, get off the podium and acknowledge the fact that there are some really significant fundamental problems with this economy, whether it's a definition, uh, however you want to try to evade this definition, which isn't even entirely your fault, by the way. I know. I I just, I'm infuriated because it's like, how, 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 how do these, how, how do these folks not get that people are suffering, that they're angry. There's a 75% of the country thinks we're heading in the wrong yeah. direction. Yeah. Inflation is probably the major thief of confidence in our currency and in our government and in the economy. It has not been this high in 50 years. 
And 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 just please, Lucy, save me. <laughs> yeah, save me. But Lucy, when the last time you were in the emergency room, did the surgeon tell you? Well, actually, it's <laughs> the pain you're feeling is really not all that bad. It's not. It's not by definition pain. It's actually <laughs> acute somewhere else. No, I I actually you're right. They are splitting hairs. But let's actually throw it back to a colloquialism said. 30 years ago in 1992 from a democratic strategist that Democrats don't listen to nearly enough these days. It's the economy, stupid, <laughs> yes. right? It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> where is Carville now when they need him? This is, where is James Carville? Get him on the phone. But, but that is, that is actually that this whole vignette has it all, right? It has the complete out-of-touchness of democratic political operatives and the democratic media. Gosh, I, I'm sounding I'm sounding like a right-winger no, now, but truth. they are completely out of touch with the reality of how people feel. Yeah. It's the yeah. truth. I mean, okay, so here's the thing, though. It, it betrays, as we were talking before the show, it betrays a deep insecurity, I think, among the people around Biden, because probably because his numbers are so low right now, they're just desperate. Like, no, please, it can't be so. We can't use the R word, right? Otherwise, these numbers are going to get even lower. Okay, there's another facet to this too. We should talk about the. Yeah, go ahead, Lucy. You know, if if you can't, if if you feel like the people who are in power and the people who are affecting policy that impacts you in the community where you live, if you feel like they can't even acknowledge what's happening to you and what you're experiencing when you go to pump gas, when you go to the grocery store, when you're paying your bills every month, when you're looking at your dwindling bank balance, if they can't even acknowledge your individual, your family's experience, then how could you trust them to do anything to make it better? How could you trust those people? So Democrats in this scenario they have to own what's happening. That that not to get all 1992 Clinton on you, but they have to say, I feel your pain in whatever the 2022 version of that is. Because if they can't acknowledge the problem and they continue to split hairs over the definition of recession, then that says to their voters, we don't see you. And that is that you immediately lose trust. You got to just take it on. You just have to own it. Yes. Especially, and especially with working in, class folks. Especially with <laughs> and that's what's so yeah. infuriating to me is the Democratic yes. Party is is on this, you know, th- this identity crisis tour trying to trying to still think that they're the party of the working class. And yet you have all of these economists and all these administration officials saying, oh, no, you know, there's there, – there, there, this isn't a recession. Like we've got low, low unemployment and we've got, and, and again, it's one of these rare moments where I've got so much to say, like a a champagne. It reminds me of when people used to argue that the Vietnam war was not a war. It was a conflict. It's like, it's so ridiculously (laughs) absurd that you're arguing these technicalities that you're losing literally everybody who is listening to you because it says, I'm not in the same galaxy you're in. And I'm so insecure about acknowledging something that wasn't even my fault, probably as a result of sagging polling numbers all over the place, that there's this idea that if we just aren't honest about it. And if we, if we don't pull our ostrich head out of the (laughs) sand, no one's going to notice if we don't look at it and we don't acknowledge it, then somehow it might just go away. 
or if we just pinpoint a couple of bright spots that are actually, that we think are actually good, then we're going to be able to change the narrative altogether, that people are going to believe us. But guess what? If you turn to Fox News right now, you look at their website, guess what they're talking about? Biden tries to rewrite the definition of a recession, right? If the numbers aren't good for you, let's just change the definition. And that's exactly what they're doing. A, A recession is two quarters of negative growth. Yes. That's uh, that's where that's this what is everybody understands. And by the way, that's what Wall Street understands it to be. And guess what? They're a lot smarter than you. So <laughs> like what, like they they don't care about your technical <laughs> after the fact judgment call about whether or not something was a recession. The ripple effect's going to happen anyway. <laughs> well, if it walks like a recession, talks like a recession and feels like Most a recession to people in their communities, yeah, well, it's a well recession. Put. Yeah, <laughs> just like it doesn't matter if the sort of if the overall price of oil is coming down, if it hasn't come down at the pump, or it hasn't, you know, it, these yeah. are perception. There's is also reality. one other piece of this speaking to perception, which is the, the the attempt to control perception by by the by the news network. So if you just pull up, I did this yesterday in an editorial meeting, and I guess I shouldn't have been as surprised as I was. But if you pull up Fox News and, and MSNBC, their websites, their homepages next to each other, one of them is talking about economic pain and the recession and the IMF's global warning that the, we're looking at a global recession. And the other one, MSNBC, not a single word. Uh, the inflation, nowhere to be seen. Recession, nowhere to be seen. Economy, nowhere to be seen. Job, nowhere. None of it. And I just was like, oh my God, it isn't just, and and actually um, Eric Weinstein noticed this, noted this on Twitter yesterday too. He's like, there seems to be not just a sort of, you know, it used to be we had, we had at least some common stories and then both sides would try to put their spin on it, right? Each, each media outlet would try to put their spin on it. But now they're behaving, I'm saying this, they seem to be behaving much more like political campaigns where you define an issue set. We call them issue sets, yeah. which is like the, the 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 list of topics that your candidate is allowed to engage on because it's a net positive for him vis-a-vis public opinion and the list of things that you do not engage on because public opinion is against your position. Correct. And that's how these media outlets seem to be behaving now. And I wonder what you guys think about that. Uh, that's not a new dynamic. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's why, you know, you can see these split screens of 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 not only the issues that we're talking about being completely different, but this this reality bubble that we as a country are in is we don't we don't agree on what the news is, let alone on what the facts are. So look, the Democrats' biggest challenge coming into the summer, we, we've been talking about this on the show since January, has been that the motivating issues for their base are not there. They are now since May. Roe Wade gets overturned. The, the January 6th hearings, the refrigerator her, hum turns into this, you know, big loud noise as we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And now you're starting to see the generic ballot moving more towards the Democrats, all in a predictable, reliable range as we've been discussing for six to eight months. Yep. The, so the, the, the focus for MSNBC and for CNN needs to be on those issues if Democrats are going to be competitive. They're not going to talk about the economy because – Voters don't view them favorably on the economy. And again, no one suggests. Yeah. But, but the but trouble Fox does. Yeah. But the trouble comes when most of the voters actually rank the economy as the most important thing. Right. Well, well it can. But here's the difference that I think here's what the debate yeah. is. It's which voters do uh-huh. the Democrats need. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, yes. people are saying the economy is a problem. It's undeniable. That's what's so absurd about what the administration is putting out. The economy is in, is is not good. 
no one's feeling good about the economy or the direction of the country. That has manifested up until the last six weeks in sagging poll numbers for Joe Biden and core pieces of the Democratic coalition being either disengaged or turned off. What has brought those voters back is these cultural issues. Ironically enough, Democrats may actually win on cultural issues that have motivated and brought those folks back, not because they're pro-Democrat or they're pro-Biden, but because they're realizing the threat that the Republicans share. And so it's not that everybody believes that the economy or pocketbook issues are going to be the driving, motivating force for the elections. What is happening is the issue set or the issues matrix that is coming into play are very advantageous for the sliver of voters that the Democrats need. And now you're starting to see a slight advantage for Democrats in the generic ballot. I I think that Democrats more than Republicans have a real problem of not understanding who their base is and being in denial about who their base is. And their base now, and we've talked about this in different ways on the Roundup, and I've talked with both of you individually about it offline, their base are <laughs> college-educated yeah. white people, yeah. who, right? Who, who that's don't feel their the base now. Impacts, yeah. by the way. Wealthy college-educated white people, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's the Democratic Party's base. Now, the Republican Party is a lot more in touch with their base right now. And they're also, frankly, broadening their base in ways that the Democratic Party is not broadening their own base. And so I think that the Democratic Party has completely lost touch with some of the traditional constituencies that we probably would have a couple of cycles ago talked about as part of that, say, Barack Obama, Donald Trump voter, that realignment that Mike has talked a lot about and written a lot about. I was thinking about this this week because I was on the phone with a campaign strategist who's a Democratic campaign strategist who's working on... um, a gubernatorial race in a battleground state uh, and basically waiting to see what Republican comes out of the primary. And he told me that he was hopeful that one Republican, they're, they're both horrible Republicans. I won't get into what race it is because it's, you know, like a million races around the country. It's not Arizona. (laughs) It's a, it's a battleground state that is not Arizona. But he basically told me that he hoped that the Republican candidate who came out of the Republican primary is a person, it was a particular person because that person in the past and and even in the not too distant past has said a lot of really, really very powerfully sort of like supportive things about labor unions and has ties to labor unions. And he said, so wouldn't that be great? Because then we can really, really hit him on that. Like there will, you know, (laughs) you (laughs) don't get get it. it. You don't get it. (laughs) You don't get who the Republican party resonates with now, do you? The Republican party resonates- Right. With union voters, right? Yeah, exactly. With labor and Republican voters are not turned off by that anymore. This is not 2012, <laughs> buddy. So I think that those kinds of things, and this is a person who is an insider. This is a person who is connected and and is at the at the table, right? There's just a mismatch, I think, between the strategy and who the voters are. And this is a a perfect example of this. In, in that sense, maybe they're onto something. Maybe the uh, relatively affluent college-educated white people, maybe the what's the technical definition of recession works for them. But that is a that's a pretty narrow that's a pretty narrow sliver. So it's you're not getting new supporters with talking points like that. Okay, uh, while we're talking about the economy, it's worth talking about the housing market for a minute because there's a there's another 
interesting piece of this that I'd like your perspectives on. So after two years of not being able to build homes fast enough, the country's home builders are seeing a sharp slowdown in sales and an increase in supply. This is according to CNBC. The sales of newly built homes were down 8% in June from the month prior and down 17% from June of 2021 last year. Pulte Group, uh, one of the nation's biggest home builders, reported that new orders for homes were down 23% from last year, and the cancellation rate was at 15% compared to 7% last year. So these are big numbers, big, big movers. According to the New York Times, interest rates on the average 30-year mortgage have now jumped to about 5.5% up from 3% at the start of the year. Now, for context, that adds hundreds of dollars a month to a typical house payment, and and that has also disqualified a lot of a lot of buyers. Redfin, the real estate brokerage, recently reported that buyers are trying to back out of sales agreements at the fastest pace since the early weeks of the pandemic. Now, there's also at the other side of this, if you take a long view here, there's a long-term housing shortage in the country. So as the housing market contracts, the short-term problem for builders right now is that they have too many homes and not enough buyers. So we're going to see this correction happening, and that's going to have its its own sort of set of uh, economic impact. But at the same time, the U.S. has a decades-long housing shortage. The long-term problem here is that there's not enough houses for all the people who want them. And last year, Freddie Mac estimated that the nation's housing supply deficit was at 3.8 million units. That's up from 2.5 in 2019. So it's growing. While the analysts differ and have different figures, the consensus is that the in the U.S., we haven't built enough homes to keep up with demand, especially for middle and lower income families. That's also according to the Times. The lack of housing units is a major driver in the affordability crisis that has spread from the coastal cities to a huge swath of the country. It is not just in the urban areas anymore. And another major driver in the problem is that the places where new housing is most acutely needed Existing homeowners resist it and local governments won't allow it. So the combination of rampant nimbyism, which we've talked about as vis-a-vis California before, Mike. California. Right? Neighbors who resist new development and zoning and land use regulations, which limit how much housing can be built. So there's this cycle where the backlog grows during downturns if this is making sense, because of market forces, right? And then it persists during the good times because of the government-imposed limitations on construction. So it acts like a one-way ratchet, and that's why this is getting so much worse. So I I lay all of that at your feet because I want to talk about this being a problem that has the greatest impact on middle and lower-income Americans, right? As Because we've talked a lot about the ongoing partisan realignment based on income and education. We just talked about that vis-a-vis uh, the, the, the recession. Is there a way for Democrats to win back the voters they're losing with housing policy? Mike? Wow, that's a, that's a great setup to that question. I, I'm still kind of soaking in. I, I think Lucy's very astute, very insightful observation that the real struggle between the parties here is that the Democrats don't understand that their base is gone and the Republicans very much get where their base is at. Yeah. That's really- Because well, they're the winners in that equation. Well, not only are they the winners in that equation, but they're playing to it and they're running to it. I think the Democrats still really believe that they're the party of the working class. That's just because it's their, they believe Absolutely. that and yeah. they're wrong. I mean, yeah, and it's right. not just us saying that, it's voters saying that, it's working class voters. The data is showing that trend going away. I just, I, I, that's a really, really insightful. So, so with that in mind, to your question, what can they do? And by the way, as we're sitting here, 
the Fed just announced a three-quarter percent interest rate hike. Wow. Which is which is slamming the brakes. That's, that, that's on like the grab the growth. steering wheel, hope the airbag doesn't come off. Or or yeah. I mean, and, and the truth is with inflation as bad as it yeah. is, they don't have any choice. Right. That's the other ironic part about this recession. And I, I will get to the home building part yeah. in a second. Yeah. But is we have to go into a recession. Yes, there has right. to be negative growth to, to rein in. Yes. 10%, 9% inflation year on year. Yeah. You have to yes. slam the brakes on the economy. That's what the Fed's doing. Again, this other I- ironic point. So to housing, there is there is clearly a long-term generational supply problem. Home ownership historically has been the best way to build a thriving middle class. If you solve the housing problem, the chances are really good that you're going to get a good chance as government policymakers to solve a whole range of other problems. You start to solve retirement problems. You start to solve education problems. You start to solve mental health problems. When you move people into a home, you create a healthier economy. You create healthier individuals. You create a healthier country. And we have been really neglect on doing that. The, the, The challenge for Democrats on this is enforcing or incentivizing, is a better way to put it, local governments to actually bring more housing online. One of the key barriers to that is the battle with the environmental constituencies in their own coalition. Is The idea of growth is anathema to very key parts of the Democratic coalition, especially as it becomes wealthier, wider, and more progressive. Those wealthier, wider, progressive groups and environmental groups are overwhelmingly white. These are not poor black and brown people who are trying to get into homes that are members of the Sierra Club. And and that's a problem, again, as they're bleeding these voters to the Republicans. And, And housing policy has got to be both carrot and stick to actually force or cajole local governments to dramatically increase the supply of housing. This gets really problematic, by the way, in an environment like this, when rates are going through the roof. Yes. Because housing is a huge multiplier for the economy. And if you're building a ton of housing, as we, we, we have been, you hire contractors, you hire blue collar workers, yep. you hire plumbers and you hire pipe fitters and electricians and you hire, you know, a craftsman and, and all sorts of laborers. That's the best way to, 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 to goose the economy. Conversely, the way to stop the econ- economic growth, which is what we're trying to do is you slam the brakes by raising rates mm-hmm. and that will contract and hurt blue collar workers. Yeah. Go ahead, Lucy. I know enough about housing to know when I'm getting out of my depth. So I will say a couple of things about this, knowing that I'm not operating from expertise on this at all. But I'll I'll just say a few things that I think also impact some of that. I think that there's no question that Mike is right, that there are those kinds of forces, but they're also at play, but there are also other forces at play like... Um, lack of acceptance by people that a thing that would both solve some of our housing crises and be environmentally friendly is dense yes, urban housing. Yes, yes, right? dense, yes. We need more dense urban, we need more high density housing. We need that. It's, we, we cannot build a sustainable, say, 
West or insert wherever that involves everyone having a third of an acre. We just can't. Sorry, that's we can't. Right. So that's one thing. But then you run into a different constituency, right, which are the kind of American dream NIMBYs who think that because they have their perfect Pulte home plot of a third of an acre, that they don't want the person down the street to have um, mixed use, say, you know, four unit multifamily, right? Because in their mind, that brings down their property values, right? You start to see the crescendo effect in some in, in this policy area and many others where there are all these different layers, no single layer of government can solve this, right? You've got the interest rate piece, you've got the federal housing policy piece, but then you have, for example, local councilmen who are passing zoning that makes it harder to uh, make affordable housing for people in a neighborhood that used to be um, a shishi neighborhood, right? So it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated area. Is shishi the area. technical term or the colloquial <laughs> term? I was thinking about that. Well done. I started to say chic and then I thought, then I thought, well, is, I don't know. It's was a, Chandler, Arizona it's pejor- ever it's chic? The pejorative, no. It's the pejorative side of the, of the chic coin. <laughs> it's a lot of white kitchens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All white cabinetry. Can you tell that I've been looking at houses lately? It's like the all white kitchens. It's the West Elm sconces. It's the, yeah, grand room scheme. (laughs) On Monday, the New York Times published an article about the billion dollar industry of smuggling migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Over the last decade, smuggling migrants has evolved from a disjointed network of coyotes into a multi-billion dollar international business controlled by organized crime, including some of Mexico's most violent drug cartels. So just last month, 53 migrants in San Antonio were found dead in a tractor trailer. And that is the deadliest smuggling incident that we've seen in the country to date. While migrants have long faced kidnapping and extortion in Mexico border cities, the incidents are on the rise in the U.S. More than 5,046 people were arrested and charged with human smuggling last year. That's up from 2,762 in 2014. Four years ago, the industry was about $500 million, and today it has soared to an estimated $13 billion, according to Homeland Security investigations. Now, The ballooning industry has drawn attention from Texas Senator Ted Cruz in a new ad. Before we go on, let's take a listen to that ad. These children come in in debt to vicious cartels, thousands and thousands of dollars. And the teenage boys work for the gangs in every city in America. And the teenage girls experience a hell worse than that, with far too many of them human trafficked into sex slavery. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are responsible for the worst plague of slavery in America since the Civil War. This is not compassionate. This is not humane. This is barbaric. Now, 
it must be said, maybe it doesn't need to be said, but on this show, Ted Cruz is far from a credible messenger on anything. We don't know where the images and the ads were taken or whether they are even from the present. At least one of them is from 2019. However, he's also very smart. And the language Cruz is using is different. It's humanizing. And this is not the language of the 2018 campaign cycle when Republicans were talking about a caravan of migrants coming to take your jobs. He is deliberately emphasizing the word slavery. And I want to talk about what you think the goal is with this shift in messaging on immigration specifically. Like, who are the types of voters... First of all, what is he doing here? And what are the types of voters the you know, the cruise team is trying to reach with this? Mike, why don't you lead off? Well, there, well there, there's a few things. The, the main thing that they're trying to do is something that I think Republicans have been doing and do with these types of racially charged issues is kind of t- try to take some sort of uh, ownership of the language of the left. That's the main thing that they're trying to do because what it does is it justifies these often I would use the same word he did, barbaric positions, which aren't really policy solutions. It's very, very clear that a lot of what Ted Cruz is saying is actually true. It's also not new. This dynamic has been around for a long time. And when your solution has been to build a wall and separate parents from their children as a fear tactic to prevent you know families from being reunited and and, and, and literally um, creating a pathway for children to get into gangs and to be human trafficked is 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 hypocrisy. This can all be resolved, and that th- this is probably the one infuriating issue of my entire adult life and career is for the past twenty five or thirty years, all of this can be resolved. But both parties, and yes, I mean both parties, are complicit in not solving this problem. Democrats could have solved this in in a heartbeat. And a handshake in 2008. They chose not to. They could be working on a bill now. My good friend Alex Padilla has taken the lead in the U.S. Senate from the California side, but you're not hearing anything else about that movement in a way that could be done comprehensively. Marco Rubio, to his credit, before he lost his mind with the Gang of Eight, actually proposed a real comprehensive, meaningful immigration reform proposal. So everybody on both sides of the aisle are complicit in this. The political question is an attempt to, I think, make these really barbaric extreme positions, which are really untenable beyond the current Republican base for Republicans, somehow something more appealing that they can actually say, we are on the human side of this issue. Now it's the Democrats that are enslaving people and driving young children into prostitution and gang-related activity. Um, will it work? Yeah, it will. It will work. I don't know how deep it will work. I don't know how much traction they'll get, but but it will work. The 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 bigger concern in my mind, though, is again this continuing toxic hypocrisy for a man who has spent his entire time in the United States Senate creating this exact problem. Yeah, that's. I think the most troubling part of all of this. Yeah. I mean, that's the most infuriating part of it. So Lucy, you're from a border state. Do you think it's going to work in particular with the voters just outside the Republican base that he's aiming at? Well, I think that there's something even more pernicious about this ad, which is that I think that he's also subtly trying to create a permission structure for anti-Hispanic sentiment and basically open 
racism and distrust of young Hispanic Americans or newly arrived immigrants to this country. Because while there is a little bit of compassion about this is terrible, he says, you know, these children come in in debt to vicious cartels, thousands of thousands of dollars. And then he said, the teenage boys work for the gangs in every city in America. What does that, what does that even mean? I mean, he's, he's basically saying, you know, young (laughs) teenage boys of Mexican descent are gang members. What, who, who is he, who's he telegraphing that to? That's a really appalling thing to say. It's, it's not true, but it's also completely appalling. So I think that he actually is, this is not a compassionate ad at all. This is a, a way to further silo communities of people. So I, maybe that's not maybe that's not what you're getting at, but but I think that that's super super important. I think, I think they using the language of the left is um, is, is interesting here. But I so I remember back in 2020, um, I recorded an episode with a woman from Texas named Rita Parker. She voted for Trump in 2016. Uh, she said she hadn't been paying much attention to that race, um, but what really concerned her um, and really cemented you know, her, her vote, she couldn't vote for 20 of her Trump in 2020, um, were the conditions at the border and the Trump immigration policy. That was the thing that moved her. Um, and so away I, from him. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah. Away from him. Yeah. She voted for him the first time in 2016. And then the, the, the border stuff is what moved her away from Trump in 2020. Yeah. Um, and it, and in particular the conditions at the border. And that was, again, as you mentioned, the family separation policy, kids in cages, all that stuff. So, Anyway, so that's that's why this sort of jumped out at me because it made me think about, you know, what are the chances that those types of voters will move back toward the Republican Party? I, I look, I, I uh, this is an issue that really I, I've never seen a more viscerally emotional based issue than the, the fight over immigration. It's literally one of the main reasons why I got involved and engaged in politics. Uh, this ad will work. This ad will bring people back. Uh, and the reason why is it will put the Democrats on defensive and they will start doing what Democrats do, which is they'll start trying to explain why this isn't slavery and it's not their fault rather than pushing uh, forward and aggressively and saying that the conditions that the Republicans implemented cr- exacerbated That's this exactly situation. Yeah. Go ahead, Lucy. And it's a really racist ad. It just is a really, really racist piece of video, this ad by Ted Cruz. and But it's the most effective kind of racism. This is what I was getting at with the permission structure. Because what's better than a, than a situation where you can say, they're just beyond help. Some, some group is beyond help. This cannot be fixed, right? And that's what this ad is doing. It's, yeah, it's terrible. It's horrible. Yeah, we understand that they're experiencing something awful when they're brought over by the cartels, but it's so bad that we can't do anything to help these teenage boys. I mean, Ted Cruz, to be clear, is not trying to help right. anyone who's yeah. tied up in a, in a cartel situation. Right. So it will work because it both, you can act like you give a damn about the human condition piece of this, but also conveniently not really because it is also a throwing up his hands kind of kind of commercial where he's saying these teenage boys work for gangs in every single city in America. 
what is he saying to his supporter? He is saying, if you see a teenage boy who looks brown and seems like he might have a an accent that sounds like his country of origin is south of the border, then he's a gang member. That's what Ted Cruz is saying to these people. And and maybe it's not that boy's fault, but we can't even help him because he is he is beyond help. I don't mean to like overly extrapolate no, here, no, but I think that's right. That's what yeah. I feel like we should be calling yeah. out. Yeah. And the way Democrats ought to be responding to this is on, is on the offensive. It's ab- yeah. go on the offensive. Go on the offensive. But, but let me don't re- explain. Not exactly. <laughs> don't explain and don't try to justify. But, but let me also say this. Here's where you need to go on the offensive. And Beto O'Rourke just did this last week. He's starting the debate by saying we need enhanced border security. Why Democrats are afraid of that is completely beyond me, but it's part of them being afraid of their own base and its own sensibilities. Overwhelmingly, Americans of every persuasion want en- enhanced border security. There's nothing wrong with that. As a sovereign nation, it's we not should, racist to say it's not racist the border. to say that, right. guys. Okay, <laughs> so Beto O'Rourke has fortunately pushed into that space because for somehow Democrats, if Beto says it, <laughs> Beto says it, it's yeah. okay. Beto's more Latino than Mike Madrid, by the way. So he's, he's safer. If he says it, then he can, can get away with it. But, but that's a different topic for another day. What, what is also being allowed here beyond what, what Lucy correctly articulates as an, as a blatant racist appeal to, to not only his supporters, but to others by justifying and giving a permission structure to this really heinous beliefs and saying, Oh, we're really looking out for them. And we know that that's not the case is the the fact that organized crime is going into this business because the returns are there. (laughs) It's a business and the policies of the Trump administration created that likelihood. When you start building a wall, that's not going to stop this. It's going to make it even more profitable by finding other more dangerous routes and extorting people and indebting them even more as indentured servants or slaves. That's the net effect of these policies. So run on that, Democrats. Say there's a way to do border security. Talk about a legal pathway to citizenship, which the Republicans absolutely will not touch, but most Americans are with you on that. And so this is just another issue where if Democrats could get past their own insecurities, political insecurities about border security, they could win on this issue. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why the, why, why the roadmap has been there since the early 2000s. Yeah. The numbers have been there. But believing that somehow saying we need to heighten border security is racist is absurd. It's not racist. It's a legitimate policy position to be had so long as you're also including a pathway to citizenship and reforming the immigration system. Comprehensively. Do it comprehensively. Yeah. 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 You have to. Last week, the January 6th committee held another primetime hearing, this time about Trump's dereliction of duty during the attack. The committee tracked Trump's movements while rioters stormed the Capitol at his urging. Spoiler alert, he spent most of that afternoon watching Fox in his private dining room. One of the most harrowing parts was hearing the recorded testimony from a former White House security official who was unnamed. They recounted listening to radio communications with Vice President Pence's Secret Service detail while the events at the Capitol unfolded. Let's listen to that. 
members of the BPT tell at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, there were a lot of there was a lot of yelling, um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of very personal calls um, over the radio. So uh, it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it, but um, uh, there were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting. For, for whatever the reason was on the ground, the BPT tell thought that this was about to get very ugly. What prompted you to put it into an entry, as it states there, service to the county? If they're running out of options and they're getting nervous, it, it, it sounds like we're, that we came very close to either service having to use legal options or, or worse. Like I, I, at that point, I don't know. Is the BP compromised? Is the detail kind of, like I, I don't know. Like we didn't have visibility, but it doesn't. If they're screaming and, and saying things like say goodbye to the family, like the floor needs to know this is going to on a whole other level soon. The following morning, the Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal and New York Post both ran editorials targeting Trump for his inaction during the attack. The Post's view was that Trump had proven himself unworthy of returning to the presidency, and the Journal said that he had, quote, utterly failed the test of the January 6th crisis. Now, The fact that Trump watched the attack on the Capitol unfold while sitting by and doing nothing to stop the violence wasn't newly revealed last week, right? The editorial boards at the Wall Street Journal and New York Post have known that for 18 months now. They knew that the bogus claims of election fraud that led to the insurrection were lies. They didn't tune in on Thursday night and learn that Trump had failed in his duty to protect the Constitution. They've known that for over a year. They're recognizing a changing landscape in the Republican Party. They think it's easier and more politically expedient for them that Trump not run for president. So how are you both thinking about their move uh, away from Trump, Lucy? Well, they're moving away from Trump, but they're not moving away from the things that Trump brought us, like the open hostility toward (laughs) government and democratic norms or the penchant for authoritarianism. They're, I, I've said this a different way, but they're just, they're working out the kinks. They're upgrading the, they're upgrading the, the model. So it's not a good thing. Trump has too much baggage now. They'd like to overcome it, but they're not jettisoning the underpinnings. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but they're not jettisoning the underpinnings of the dumpster fire that is today's Republican party. They're just saying like, God, that guy who couldn't keep, it together and looked pretty bad on January 6th. I mean, even in the polling, you see that they're they're right. Strategists are right to push for a move away from Trump, but they don't need to have a move away from Trumpism because don't misinterpret cooling uh, in terms of, of perception of Trump, a lack of warmth, an increasing lack of warmth toward Trump from Republican voters as a cooling on the Republican Party. They're not cooling on the Republican Party. They're cooling on Trump. And that's a super important distinction that we should keep holding up. I really hate it when people say that Donald Trump is a unique threat to our country or to American democracy. My friend Joe Walsh says it all the time. And every time he says it, I say, no, Donald Trump is not a is not the unique threat to American democracy. The Republican Party is the unique threat. (laughs) to American democracy. And that's not changing. Yeah. And we shouldn't confuse the fact that these outlets have moved away from him as a sign that they're moving back to supporting democracy in any way. And we need to keep saying that. So Jennifer Rubin argues in yeah. the Washington Post, the, uh, that, you know, the Republican party is now solidly, still solidly anti-democratic. 
um, a lot of mainstream Republicans still leave open the possibility that they would have refused to certify uh, Biden's victory. The AP is reporting that uh, the authoritarian prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, who we just talked about, Mike, yeah. uh, is slated to appear at next month's CPAC conference in Dallas. Hungary is coming to CPAC. You just ruined the story. I, I'm going to oh, be watching this. Oh. I'll find another one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there, are, there are other Republicans who are starting to emerge as possible alternatives. Uh, we're going to talk more about that in Politicology Plus. Um, since 2015, so much of the energy has been toward defeating Donald Trump, which is understandable, but the anti-democratic movement in the Republican Party is bigger than Trump, and it looks like it's going to survive even if it moves on from Trump. So- uh, there's also this story, right, that just broke yesterday, uh, Tuesday. The Washington Post is reporting the Justice Department has now investigated Donald Trump's actions as part of the criminal probe of the efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. So apparently, Mike, prosecutors who are questioning witnesses before a grand jury have recently asked about conversations with Trump, his lawyers, and others in his inner circle who attempted to substitute Trump loyalists for certified electors for some of the states Joe Biden won. The witnesses have included two top aides to Pence. They've been asking detailed questions about meetings Trump led in December of 2020 and January 2021, the pressure campaign on Pence to overturn the election, uh, what instructions Trump gave his lawyers and advisors about the fake electors uh, and sending electors back to the states. Um, and they also received, the Justice Department received phone records of key officials uh, and aides in the Trump administration, including Meadows, uh, back in April. Um, there's been public reporting, right, on the investigations into people within Trump's orbit, like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, uh, he of independent state legislature doctrine fame, which we will talk about much more in the weeks and months ahead. But this level of interest into Trump's actions is the newly reported piece. So I wonder how you're thinking about the impact of a formal investigation uh, into Trump and what that would have on the 2020, uh, now going to the midterms and then 2024 race. I, I think it's it's seismic. I think it's very significant. And I you know have said since the insurrection, um, that I, I do believe that this comeuppance, this reckoning would, would arrive. I think a lot of people have become very impatient and these conspiracy yeah. theories about Merrick Garland being part of, you know, some Trump underground or whatever nonsense that's out there. The wheels of justice, unfortunately do move slowly, but this is the largest investigation ever undertaken by the United States government in our entire history. And it includes the president of the United States, his chief of staff, half of his circle of senior, senior advisors, probably six members of the United States Senate and at least a dozen members of the United States House of Representatives. Oh, and probably a hundred or so fake electors. Like it's not a small yes. thing. Yeah. It's not going to get done in Twitter time. Yeah. Okay. This is going to take work <laughs> and it's got to be right. Yeah. You've got to get it right. And the fact that there have been no leaks coming out of this and that this is all happening in a very methodical structured way is a testament to our justice system. And I believe to the institution that is probably going to carry us through this and see this. So what does that mean politically? A couple of things. The first, Lucy, plug your ears. I think Donald, I think Donald Trump is a unique threat to the United States of America. And I'm going to tell you why. I do not believe that the erosion of our institutions is going to stop with him going away. But I do believe that Ron DeSantis would not have been trying to implement and orchestrate a coup with the crazy cast of clown characters. How's that for alliteration? Mm. Wow. Four of them. You might've just titled the episode. Yeah. 
uh, to overthrow the government. I, I don't believe that. I could be wrong, but I don't think that I am. Uh, the shamelessness which he brought and unleashed on this country is going to last for a generation. The Republican Party is a neo-fascist movement now. It embodies a threat to the republic because of the authoritarian tendencies of a whole wide range of, of elected officials and party leaders. Donald Trump did not bring that in, and he is, it will last after he is gone. But the actions of him as an individual do present a unique threat. And more importantly, what we do know about cults and dictatorships is they are rarely passed on to other people, especially when it's done outside of the parameters of their immediate family. The cult of personality that is Donald Trump is not going to, you're not going to have Ron DeSantis going out to some remote fields in Georgia in the rain and getting 5,000 people to show up. That's not going to happen. Okay. This is, he is a unique threat. It does not say he's the only threat. I'm using unique, not in the exclusive sense, but in the peculiar sense of, of a threat to, to the Republic. Um, It goes a long way to then creating divisions within the Republican Party that a normal political party has, which could create room for people like us who are engaged in protecting our democratic institutions with a small D um, to actually engage people in a debate. And that is not, it has not up until this point been possible under the Trump regime. Lucy. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, I actually want to see if I actually want to see if this is actually uh, semantics because the question is, well, is is he a unique threat or is he not a unique threat? And I what do, know my answer, right? And what do we, <laughs> right? But the, but just because a unique threat doesn't mean he's the only threat, and is it like does it the passing of Trump does not then signal a return to the to respect for small d democratic institutions? No, that's, the, the that's Republican the, Party will never right. return to what it was. Right, it cannot, it will right. not, it is not. It is something completely different than it was eight years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that in a different in a different way this week. I was thinking about so a thing that happens to me a lot in my work is that I, you know, as a person who's a former Republican who mostly in political strategy work is trying to help Democrats, I often and I'm sure you both have experienced this, am met with a lot of um skepticism by democratic yeah. operatives. Suspicion. But one mm-hmm. Yeah, suspicion. Like, yeah, I'm I'm a secret squirrel. I'm I'm about to unveil the Trump 25 plan. I'm playing the dumbest long game ever. I'm secretly going to go back to helping Republicans. And I was thinking about all these new new entities that have sprung up over the last several years or have really really gained esteem. Right. Um, so a newish one would be like Turning Point USA, um, an older one, but that really caught caught fire speaking of Victor Orban would be like Claremont right yeah. and and the these these institutions there's sometimes i think an idea that if you were a republican 10 years ago you must have been a person who is like who at one time was like the way Marjorie Taylor Greene is now and that is not uh, the tradition that i came up in right. or either of you right. and so it's okay to say it's you can both hold in your mind, for example, among the Republican operative class or the former Republican operative class, both that 
you know, there are things that you see now that you didn't see at the time. The the road to hell was paved in strange intentions, <laughs> but that also it is a complete dumpster fire in a way that it wasn't. And yeah. I don't get resentful of this. I just think it's an interesting thought exercise today. Like a, a person, I think about this a lot with young people whose resumes come across my desk who want jobs. I think if you were, if you're a young person today who like at the, as a 17 year old is like, you know what, I want to join the Republican party. You very much probably do not have anything in common necessarily with a person who did that 20 years ago, because you are choosing as a young person to join this proto-fascist effort. It's just, it's horrible. So I think it's true that we're not going back. We're not going that, but there is a thing that we have left. There is, we're not, this is a, this is not where there's, there's nothing, there is nothing to return to, but it, it, it is, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, I, help, is, help me out here, no, no, Mike. No, no, well, actually, no, Lucy, this is actually a really good point that you bring up, especially regarding uh, Turning Point USA, right? Well, also, it is true also that once upon a time, like the Heritage Foundation and the Claremont Institute were, were, were they were not, they were, they were nothing like what they are now. And I love your metaphor right. of like catching fire, not as in like spreading, but as in like spontaneously combusting into, you know, what, like what happened yeah. to them? Um, but TPUSA held, this is all to your point, actually held its annual, uh, student action summit in Tampa Bay, uh, and hosted some of its biggest stars in the MAGA movement. Uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert told the crowd that contrary to popular belief, she's never been an escort for Ted Cruz, Donald Trump. (laughs) Donald Trump claimed that he is the most persecuted person (laughs) in American history. And Taking the cake, Congressman Matt Gates, we have a clip of this, took to the stage to talk about abortion rights protesters. Here's what he had to say. Have you watched these pro-abortion, pro-murder rallies? The people are just disgusting. Like, why is it that the women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions? Nobody wants to impregnate you if you look like a thumb. These people are odious on the inside and out. They're like 5'2", 350 pounds, and they're like, give me my abortions or I'll get up and march and protest. And I'm thinking, march? You look like you got ankles weaker than the legal reasoning behind Roe versus Wade. A few of them need to get up and march. They need to get up and march for like an hour a day, swing those arms, get the blood pumping, maybe mix in a salad. So to your point about a 17-year-old now signing up to become a part of this thing, that's exactly who he's talking to, right? This is a youth conference. It's a youth movement. And so I, Lucy, first, especially, I would like to know how you read the continued popularity of these figures within the, you know, among young people within the Republican party. It's, we all had a conversation about this the other day when we were talking about CPAC and what it used to be like and what it's like now. And I was telling you guys that the last time that I was at CPAC was in 2020 because I went to record a radio show. <laughs> not, not because I was like a willing CPAC attendee. Yeah, I was, like, I was wait, at the CPAC. <laughs> Actually, the truth is that I went because the Daily Show, it never aired because of COVID, but the Daily Show um, wanted 
some people to come and they were following uh, people like Joe Walsh around and, and, uh, and having confrontations with CPAC attendees. So I got it. I had a pass to CPAC from, from the daily show, but, um, but I remember I did a, I did an NPR interview and the person who was my counterpoint on radio row at CPAC was this young woman, um, who had started, I don't know, like young people against socialism or something. And I felt like so many of these young people there, bright eyed also didn't, and maybe this isn't true. Maybe I'm making excuses for them didn't quite understand what they were getting into or how they were being used, especially young women. And I think about my time as a young woman coming up in conservative politics. And look, there are some good things, there are some bad things. Young Republican operatives, traditionally, there's a lot of discipline. It's a very, it's very, um, there's a lot of emphasis on competence and also a lot of emphasis on, we just talked about this the other day, a lot of emphasis on like um, being very presentable, right? Like being, and Mike said this to me the other day, like you have on a sports coat, if you're a guy, yeah. right? If you're That's and, right. Blue blazer and blue blazer with gold buttons. The blue blazer. The blue blazer. That's the uniform, yeah. yeah. Light blue button down usually right under the blue blazer. And some of that culture was okay. It can take on kind of an ugly form for young women, I mean, that was, which is that you're, you need to be, don't be, (laughs) don't be slutty, but do try to be kind of sexy. It's a little, you know, there's all this, and you hear a comment like the clip you just played and you think, oh, the rest of us over here as women are enjoying, for instance, some relief in the post Me Too world where we're not looked upon with you know, the idea that we must always be at fault, right? Or, you know, we've changed the mores a little bit where we expect have a higher standard of decency for men's behavior. And then you look at this conference and you have a guy who is credibly accused of paying minors for sex and, by the way, paying them over Venmo, um, who's been the subject of a, a criminal probe making jokes about how, you know, no one wants to have sex with a woman who's has a high BMI basically. And, and I, I don't, it's hard to know what, what, who are the people that this appeals to? You know, we could go on all day about, is it that they just hate political correctness or who knows, who knows, (laughs) but certainly I do feel terrible to think about young people, but especially young women being indoctrinated into this, being in a crowd and laughing at that. I mean, what it's, it's, it's pretty shocking. I never heard anything like that yeah. as a young person in these. I mean, it is it is a it is appalling. It's shocking. It's a race it's all to the of bottom. Those things. Yeah, it's, it's 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 actually very. Um, it's it's actually the kind of culture and way of talking that enables denying of crimes of sex crimes because then women who actually have been victims are sort of treated with like. Well, no one would no one would do that to you because you're not sexy and you're not sexy enough to be a person that a man would have taken liberties with. It's it's I don't even have words because it's so appalling. Yeah, yeah it is it is all of those things and it's all, all all of the sort of superlative negative adjectives. But it's also Mike, when we were talking about this, it's also 
like profoundly sort of transparently, embarrassingly performative, right? Because like I'm doing the hand gestures now with my hands, listeners yeah. can't see this, but what he was doing there, if you, if you watch the clip actually without the sound on it and you just watch his body language, he's desperately impersonating, mimicking Donald Trump yeah. with his hands. It's like he, he's studied, imagine, imagine That's like standing in front of the mirror, practicing to, to, to like, what saying this stuff, but also like what you're doing with your hands, you're trying to channel like Donald Trump energy. Yeah. You're trying to like move into that space. Yeah. And that's what the whole game is. It's all performative now, as we were talking about. And that's really the right word. It's the, the politics have become performative and you can say what you will 30 years ago, the conservative movement was an intellectual movement. Some of the greatest thinkers uh, politically, philo- philosophically were, were actively engaged in the understanding of conservatism as a, as a, as a way of governance. Uh, today, the George Wills of the world have been replaced by the diamond and silks. Yeah. Right. Um, you, you come out on CPAC. These are stages where Ronald Reagan, you know, yeah. st- stood and, and, and now it's like Charlie Kirk comes out and there's fireworks shows going off and lasers. And it's, it looks like a, you know, the, the, the world wrestling federation, press conference where Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair are coming out and being these performative jokesters as a way of, of pure entertainment and, and, and talk uh, and degrade and dehumanize their opponents in the ring. The same way these politicians are doing that with the Democrats is it's all a big professional wrestling event. It's like, it's like not just entertainment. It's like really bad, cheap and dumbed down base entertainment to appeal to the lowest common denominator. And that's what our politics have become, um, or at least are becoming, they're degenerating into. And, and that, that creates the environment for not only the lack of, of an intellectual or rational policy framework, but for a, a cult-like following, yeah. like that's the point. The yeah. point is to be to build your our, cult. Yeah, to build your cult. It's on our side. It's this team versus that team, and the more angry uh, and mean and vilifying and dehumanizing we are to the other side, the more likely it is that you will follow what we are saying and and make you be willing to engage in a lot of the absurdities that we are also engaged in as a way to build a social movement to yeah. take over society yeah. is really what right. it is. And part yeah. of, and, yeah. and, and part of that, part of that cult building is making value judgments about whether or not someone could be worthy and yeah. talking yeah. about, you know, and, and, and tying someone's worthiness to something like what they're, what their weight is or what their physical appearance is or what they eat or whether they work out every day. And in turn that whether or not they get to be a stakeholder in, in an issue like safe access to abortion or birth control is they, we will decide whether they're a stakeholder or not based on how Mm. they look. And that, seems like a small thing and maybe, but it's a really, it's a really big thing because that's also, that's the same culture that is telegraphing to people that the uh, Latino teenager that you see on the street is a gang member, right? If you, if you're told by Ted Cruz that that, that teenager just, he must be a gang member. 
then your interaction mm-hmm. with him is going to be very different. And the whole community's interaction is going to be very different. That's if you're told yeah. that, that, you know, heavy set, I don't even like want to say these words, right? Like that, that heavy set young woman couldn't possibly ever experience a scenario where she might need access to certain types of healthcare, like an abortion or birth control or an IUD, whatever, then you're not going to ever create interactions or foster in communities, cultures of mutual respect at all. And it, it makes people second-class citizens. Like the, the Hispanic teenage boys and the fat girls are not worthy in, in the minds of, of these people. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of the week, let's talk about what we're watching. Mike, what do you have? I'm sorry that I... <laughs> sorry, I was sorry, watching Victor Orban sorry coming I to Dallas. on your job. Yeah. <laughs> How about this? Let's, just, let's suspend the rules today. It doesn't have to... Cocktail chatter. What are you going to talk about? It's actually a good segue, um, if I could, for, for, for what, yeah. what Lucy was just, just saying. And it's not a little thing, Lucy. Like It's everything. It's, it's really this... this devolution into into tribes warring tribes which is what these movements want look so so victor orban from hungary a, a dictator who just last week basically said the hungarians don't want to be of mixed race uh is coming as a featured speaker to cpac in dallas texas so we're no longer just exporting our um bad elements of our society uh, to to play you know to the Jason Millers of the world to to Brazil for CPAC or Tucker Carlson to Hungary, they are now coming here. Like the dictators that espouse this, feel comfortable here. They they've got a home here, and that that is part of an internationally coordinated effort um, to to create a transnational political movement. Uh, they're all, they're coordinating with each other. They're talking to each other. They're sharing best practices. They're sharing operatives. They're 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 endorsing each other. Donald Trump endorsed this guy, um, and so I think it's really important that as much as we view the future and the health and the safety of democracy as this battle between Republicans and Democrats, that's really just one small battlefield on this in this global war that has emerged. And if we do not pay attention, it will be too late to combat this because the greatest weaknesses may not be 15, 20 competitive house races throughout the country. They're going to be in other democracies that are barely hanging on when you have the influence of this coordinated network designed to crush democracies, sharing resources, sharing uh, intellectual property, sharing best practices all focused on um, bringing down democratically elected yeah. governments. Watch this space. Watch this space. Lucy, what do you got? Yeah, do watch that space. And part of the way to watch it, and we talked about some of these institutions earlier in the episode, but part of how to watch that space is to pay attention to the institutions that really grow that and that then trickle down to, say, CPAC. So institutions like Claremont, um, there's a, there's a direct line between content of say five years ago, three years ago, um, 
talking about how great Victor Orban is or whatever, then you track that and you can start to see that Tucker starts talking about how great Tucker, Victor Orban is. And then you can start to see how it then starts to show up with grass tops. And pretty soon you can start to see how it's changing the rhetoric of, of grassroots and of, of base voters. So if you want to get ahead of <laughs> the next wave of proto-fascism, <laughs> subscribe to the Claremont email list. Um, no, I, mean, I, I think one thing... Right. <laughs> One thing I'm, um, I've been interested in because we now live in a, well, we don't live in a post-pandemic world, but we're more aware of pandemics uh, a little bit and of um, public public health in ways we never were. Is the brewing, and this goes to the stigma and culture stuff we were just talking about, is the the uh, brewing misinformation around monkeypox which is getting a little more attention, the monkeypox outbreak um, because of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others. They're all on the right, if you can believe it, spreading misinformation that monkeypox is a disease that you get from gay sex. And monkeypox is not an STD and children are getting monkeypox and all kinds of people are getting monkeypox. Um, and it's, but it is really creating a lot of misinformation about monkeypox that obviously perpetuates and promotes stigma against gay Americans. I mean, uh, against gay men, really, because that's where the stigma is on this issue, but also creates public health problems because it's creating the misimpression that the way that you get monkeypox is from having, you know, a sex where it's two male partners. And so that's really problematic. It has big time shades of the original HIV AIDS uh, dialogue, but it, it's, it's a thing to watch because it means that people who should maybe be getting vaccinated for monkeypox are not going to, and people who are sick with monkeypox may not take precautions. And that people who are sick with monkeypox uh, may be afraid to get treatment for it because they don't want to experience the kind of stigma that is being promoted um, by the culture warriors on the right. So I think that it's it's all over. It's a very manageable illness, but it's like with anything, something to to be responsible about not only in our own public health habits, but in how we talk about it. It is a very manageable illness. I think, okay, so I have a slightly different take on this, but I, but well, okay. I, I see, I see what's happening on the right. I see the rhetoric on the right, but my immediate, and as, as someone who just got his monkeypox vaccine, um, uh, last week in LA, I, um, I have been most alarmed and frustrated by the lack of clarity in the public health messaging that has been coming out of the CDC and the FDA and the local um, public health departments at the county level because they aren't being clear about who is most at risk. And as of right now, as of today, monkeypox is a, is a disease. It's not an STI. It is a disease that is spread primarily among um, the gay male population, men who have sex with men. It is 90, 90 something, 98, 99% of cases that have been reported and documented have been among that population. And so it's, it's a very delicate, we talked about this in our editorial meeting actually, because it's a del, it's a very delicate, um, balance in, in the way you have to talk about this. But the problem that I have 
because you don't want to stigmatize uh, a population. However, they do need to know that they are the most at risk, at least right now. Now, that doesn't mean it can it can spread at a con at a at a um, you know a concert with like lots of skin to skin contact. So it's not that you know anybody is immune from this. It's that there is a population right now that it is that it is uh, an epidemic within, and the you know the 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 um, the World Health Organization declaring it a public health emergency um, was a very sort of tenuous decision. It was kind of controversial. They were split, and it was that's not the way these decisions are normally made. But I have noticed a failure among the public health authorities to communicate clearly about who's at risk, and it is also true that the that the right has obviously taken taken the opportunity to vilify one of their favorite, um, you know, one of their favorite boogeyman communities, the LGBT community, for for the same reason, right? And so it's it, it's it's very it's very delicate. But I was frustrated that all the headlines don't indicate who is most at risk and therefore who should get vaccinated first and like right now go, you know. So anyway, that's that's my. I'll get off my soapbox. Well said. <laughs> uh, okay. Now, gosh, where are we? Um, um, sorry. Sorry, Where guys. can we find you where on the internet, we, Ron? Where can we find you on the internet? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want your tweets today. Um, uh, we're going to flip over to Politicology Plus, and we're going to talk about the uh, mm, the interesting dance that's happening in both of the primary fields. Uh, before we do that, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Mike? I can be found on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.